The measure of everyday life is made possible by support from RTI International, an independent, nonprofit institute dedicated to improving the human condition through research, development, and technical services. More information at rti.org. Wherever you are, welcome to our show. When was the last time you laughed so hard that your cheeks later hurt? That might have happened when you were by yourself, but there's a good chance that other people were around. Might it be that laughter is somehow social? Well, the poet Pablo Neruda would suggest that laughter is the language of the soul. Uh, So I wonder, what's the point of laughter for us as human beings? Well, with us to talk about all this is a psychology researcher who actually focuses on laughter. Adrienne Wood is a psychology faculty member at the University of Virginia, and she investigates how humans interact with laughter. Welcome to our show, Adrienne. Thank you so much for being here. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Great. So I, I opened the show uh, with the idea that uh, laughter often happens when we're around other people. And you've gone so far as to note that laughter is, is part of the very glue that, that holds human interactions together. Do you view laughter as, as primarily an expression intended to be heard by other people or a tool for one's own mood regulation or, or something else? How, how do you conceptualize it as, as a human phenomenon? You know, I think it's a little bit of both. I think if I had to pick one, I would say it's a tool for communicating with other people. Um, after all, it's a vocalization. It is heard by others. And the fact that it almost exclusively occurs in real or imagined social situations, I think it's pretty strong evidence that it's for communicating. But that being said, as it's evolved, it also has these maybe byproduct effects on our bodies. It um, Producing laughter, especially with another person, releases um the body's own endogenous opioids. So the thing, the hormones in our body that make us feel good um, after eating a piece of chocolate or after having sex or after using an opiate drug, all those things release opiate opioids and so does laughter. So it does make us feel good. Um, but I think that the uh, most important function of it is to communicate with others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, part, part of what you've done, you know, with your own work, uh, that's really fascinating is, um, you know, to put a spotlight on nuance and diversity in a, in a common and everyday occurrence. So, you know, here's something that hopefully, you know, most people are, are regularly experiencing uh, and can relate to, um, you know, and yet it's something which um, I, I suspect, um, you know, a lot of people uh, you know, think that there's still some mystery you know, around and not even being able to necessarily articulate, um, you know, the point and purpose of this. And, uh, and, and that's something that is really just interesting in so many ways. You know, what, what drew you to study laughter, you know, in the first place as a psychologist? Um, there's probably a bit of me search in there as there so often is with psychologists. So, um, I am a very expressive person. Um, I just, I smile big. I laugh a lot, but I was in a lab at university of Wisconsin for my PhD working with Paula Niedenthal. And we were studying nonverbal behavior in particular. We were focusing on the human smile and asking what are the social functions of smiles in everyday life. And as I was thinking about smiles and wondering to myself, like, why does the smile look the way it does? You know, 
a signal of kind of friendly intentions or positive affect, whatever you think smiles are doing, it could have looked like a million things on our faces, but it takes a particular form and it's pretty universal. And so I started to think about, well, the smile is largely a a facial expression that involves your mouth and your mouth, its primary function besides eating and consuming is um, vocalizations, right? So maybe smiles look the way they do because of the effect of that smile on our voice. And I started to look into that idea and realize that indeed, when you pull your lips back in a smile, you're changing the timbre of your voice. You're changing the kind of vowel sound. It's the reason we tell people to say cheese when we're trying to get them to smile for a photo. You know, say cheese. When yeah. you say when you say cheese and you're trying to exaggerate the e noise, you're kind of pulling your lips back into a natural smile. So. I was thinking about the relationship between smiles and voices, and then I, that led me naturally to thinking about laughter, which for me feels like the kind of um, auditory uh, analog or parallel to um, the smile. And so, yeah. I, so I decided to do my dissertation on laughter. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating journey. And I, just pointing out you know, all the different you know, sensory aspects of that, but just you know, the notion of um, you know, a smile having perhaps evolved or, or being representing what it is, uh, that's a, an interesting part of it. I hadn't really thought about the visual dimension of this as well. So, you know, I I know that laughter research has grown considerably, you know, in recent years. I I, I think maybe naively, but it would, it would seem like it, it hasn't necessarily been the predominant focus, you know, for a discipline like psychology. So I'm, I'm curious about your sense of laughter as a point of focus, you know, in other disciplines, as we kind of think across the academy, you think about your you know, university colleagues. You know, have we been thinking about laughter you know, for a long time in the humanities or in anthropology, for example? Has this been sort of invisibly there, or um, or can we point to uh, lots of instances where people you know make reference to it? Um, you know, what, what's your sense of that? I, I imagine your ears probably perk up now anytime there's a pop culture reference to laughter, or you hear read it in an old play or something, right? But what what's your sense of of our scholarly attention to, to laughter? Is this something that's that's been around or does it feel novel to you? Yeah, I mean, as a human universal and such a ubiquitous part of our lives, and I think a very ancient part of our lives, I think that probably humans have been thinking about laughter for as long as they were thinking about anything related to interaction. And you opened the show with a poet's um, take on laughter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not a, a humanist or a humanities scholar, so um, there's a lot of research that I don't even know about, I'm sure. I believe that philosophers since the time of Aristotle and Plato and probably before have been philosophizing about what laughter is and what humor is. I think that um, Plato and Aristotle really emphasized the superiority theory of laughter, the idea that you laugh to convey your superiority um, and over someone else, how you are better than them. Um, so kind of belittling others. Um, and then Kant, all sorts of philosophers over the years have talked about laughter and humor. Um, I'm more familiar with the work in the social sciences and the biological sciences. So a really famous researcher, um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, but Von Hoof um, was a biologist who did a lot of uh, evolutionary work on how different species laugh and how laughter might have evolved. Um, A lot of great work comes out of sociological traditions. Um, It's conversation analysis where sociologists and linguists will break down natural speech and conversations like kind of turn by turn and phrase by phrase and try to piece apart like what is the function of this syllable and what is the function of that word and that's been applied to laughter and then of course neuroscientists have done really cool work looking at the neural underpinnings of laughter so yeah you're totally right that it's such a universal part of our human experience so 
everybody has, every discipline has touched on it. Um, but there is something about it that makes it continue to be neglected, I think. I think because it's, it feels so silly and playful, like it doesn't yeah. feel like a topic for serious inquiry. <laughs> so yeah. that means that there's lots of low hanging fruit that I get to try to grab. Yeah, right. No, exactly. And it's, but you know, even that, that short history, and I, I really appreciate putting that all together, kind of thinking about different ways where this has popped up, um, you know, in, in different disciplines, even that starts to signal, um, I think something I want to get to in the, in the second half of the show, um, which is that, you know, any one single answer here as to what is laughter is probably going to be somewhat inadequate because there seems to be a, an interesting diversity of, uh, of function and possibilities and, and, and nuance. And so we'll get to that, um, you know, in, in the second half of the show. Um, but before we get there, uh, you know, I, I, I'm always interested in, um, you know, the, effect of doing work in an area, you know, on, on one's own, you know, take and perspective. And so, you know, a, a bit of a, a personal question here, but I'm just interested in, in how this might figure in. You know, I'm, I'm interested in, in the effects of, you know, doing laughter research, you know, on researchers themselves and, and how they do that work. Are, are you personally able to enjoy a, a funny conversation with friends or a funny movie or a comedy club? without considering what you've learned as a researcher? I mean, does your work enhance or constrain your own experiences? Or is it just this sort of surreal sense of self-awareness? What, what's that like for you uh, generally? I think, all for, I think all psychologists get a form of this question um, yeah. because we're basically studying ourselves. <laughs> I, you know, conversation is such a mem- like working memory intensive thing for us to do that I most of the time I don't have the bandwidth to be thinking about my own laughter mm. as I'm laughing and as you are making me laugh and so on. But mm. I do, if I'm kind of a third party observer to people's interactions, I like to put on my behavioral ecologist glasses and watch them as though I'm watching primates at the zoo. Um, <laughs> the one thing that it's changed, I think for the better is I no longer say that a person has a fake laugh. Like I no longer think about this, what I think of as an, not useful dichotomy between true and false laughter because all Uh, laughter is truthfully serving a purpose. uh, Um, So even if someone doesn't sound like they're genuinely enjoying themselves when they laugh, I don't think it's fair to say that they are being false. I think that they are using laughter in another way besides expressing positive affect. That's, that's fascinating, you know, cause I, I do think that, um, you know, as a marker of, uh, authenticity, um, you know, that it is something that I, I, I want, why do you think it is that people are so put off by that or they'll, they'll focus on that? Is it, is it because of their own distinct sense of like what it is like to uncontrollably laugh that it's uh, such an obvious, um, you know, contrast? I mean, what, what, what do you think it is about the um, sense of forced or performed laughter, I guess, maybe if we want to say that rather than false, mm-hmm. that is, is off-putting for people or, or that it, is it just that it stands out? Or what, what's your sense of that? A really interesting question. I mean, part of it might be cultural and like Americans really value authenticity of emotion expression. Like we mm-hmm. particularly as a culture think that you should express what you're feeling. And that's not true of all cultures. So it might be partly that it feels like people are noticing, oh, your what you do with your voice and face is not perfectly correlated with how you're probably feeling. Like you might be laughing, but you're not actually feeling strong, positive affect. So therefore you are being false and not being yourself. Um, it might also be when you do a lot of this, what we might call conversational laughter rather than this really uncontrolled positive affect laughter, um, it might feel as though you're being a little bit, you're doing a lot of self-control. Like 
you are really monitoring, monitoring yourself and trying to fit to the social situation. And people might see that as a little, um, you know, Machiavellian or like you have mm -hmm. some sort of agenda. But I think that that's just a fact of human life is we're always having to adjust and conform to the situation at hand. That's an interesting question. We should study that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, I, I I'm just, uh, it sounds like, you know, where you are on this is, is also, you know, giving people a little bit more of, um, you know, leeway and, and freedom that basically just to recognize most of what we do when we open our mouth and try to interact with each other. It's, it's genuinely felt in terms of trying to have connection, but that it's all, it's all strategic, I suppose. Right. On, on some level, if you want to not be too cynical about it, is that, is that fair yeah. to uh, say? Yeah, I mean, I take a social functional approach to these things, which means I'm thinking about how do nonverbal signals like laughter and smiles um, influence, how do we use them as tools to influence the people around us? Because that is ultimately what our, what we need to do. We need to somehow influence the behavior of others. And that doesn't mean in a controlling or conniving way. It's right. like, whenever I say anything to you, I'm trying to influence what you think. And so right. you can just think of these as yet another tool in our toolbox for influencing how other people feel and think about us and what they do next. Yeah. I mean, I can't, you know, you wouldn't necessarily judge the infant for you know, a cry if they're hungry. Right. I mean, right. We, we are uh, beings that need the help of others. And so it, it, but it really ultimately does point to our sort of social nature here in terms, and, and that here's yet another indication of it that we, you know, even something that might be this expression we're doing partly because we need, um, you know, some kind of connection or, or something else from, um, you know, from other people. So, mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Well, there's so much more um, you know, to talk about uh, with regards to laughter. Um, but first, we're going to take a brief break uh, for station identification and to acknowledge our public service mission. When we return, we're going to talk more with Dr. Adrian Wood of the University of Virginia. And you're listening to The Measure of Everyday Life, produced by WNCU. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Welcome back to The Measure of Everyday Life. Today, we're talking with Dr. Adrian Wood. She's a psychology professor at the University of Virginia. And Adrian studies laughter and studies various aspects of human interaction with laughter. You might think about this as the psychology of laughter. Uh, Adrian, in this second half of the show, I want to delve a little bit more deeply into some of the specifics of, of your work, because it's been really important in terms of taking us to a, a new um, you know, plane in terms of theoretically trying to understand you know, the range of um, you know, laughter possibilities and, and, and the function of um, you know, these different you know, types of, of laughs. And so um, that's something that uh, I, I'm hopeful we can, we can talk about here a little bit more. And in fact, I actually think it's fair to say a key tenet of your work has been, you know, this acknowledgement that, you know, that there are, there's not just one monolithic, you know, universal laugh, um, even though we might all be able to recognize, you know, laughter when we hear it, but there, there are actually many different types of laughs. 
And so can you give us some examples you know, that might help to explain you know, what you mean by that, both in terms of, you know, the actual physical sound, but also the context and just give us a sense of, of the range. And I, I imagine that listeners are going to hear a lot that they can really identify with right away in what you're saying. Yeah. So I think we all have the intuition that laughter is really varied acoustically. Um, everybody has kind of their own, when they're doing a big belly laugh, they have their, maybe their own signature laugh. Maybe you squeak a little bit or you snort when you're laughing uncontrollably and we can recognize each other based on our laughs. But even within an individual, there's a lot of variability and we have the language in English to describe it. We talk about chuckles and chortles and giggles and guffaws and um, we have an understanding and we have the scientific evidence that people laugh when they're not just when they're feeling happy and amused, but also when they're feeling nervous or embarrassed or even when they're sad. Um, so I've been thinking about all of this variability in um, the physical form that laughter takes. It just sounds so different from one instance to the next. And also the contextual variability in which it occurs. It occurs across all these different social situations. Basically, the only thing it has in common um, is the kind of forceful, rapid exhalation. It's this kind of breathing pattern that we often add our voicing to, but sometimes it's unvoiced, meaning it just sounds like a panting dog a little bit. Hmm. Um, so besides that physical form, it can really do anything. And so uh, in trying to make sense of whether there's any underlying dimensions that guide the physical form it takes. My collaborators and I have proposed that there are perhaps um, at least three different social functions that laughter might be serving okay. um, in our conversations and in our interactions, and that the laughter that we hear um, in those situations might vary, like the acoustic form of the laughter might vary um, as a function of what the laughter is doing for our social interaction. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah. So great. So, yeah. So I know you've, this is where it'd be great to even hear some examples. Yeah. I know you've got these collected almost like a, an archivist, I, I guess, <laughs> right? So maybe you can walk us through some of yeah, those. Yeah. So um, the last clips that I brought for you today are from a study I did at the University of Wisconsin for my dissertation, where we had undergraduates sitting in a lab together. They were strangers, so they didn't know each other, which meant that their laughter was probably not as frequent as, and as disinhibited as it would have been if they were friends. But we put them in three different social contexts. We had them talking about moments or they, we had them talking about video clips um, that they were watching together that were extremely funny and amusing. Um, so I'll play a laugh clip right now from one of those conversations. <laughs> and so what you'll notice about this laugh is it's kind of what we might think of as prototypical laughter. It was disinhibited. It lasted for several seconds. Um, sometimes it can go on for minutes if you really get going. It felt good probably for you to listen to it, and it probably felt good for the person to produce it. So because it has this feel-good component to it, my colleagues and I call it reward laughter because we propose that it serves this social function of rewarding um, the interaction partner as well as the self. So you just said something really funny and entertaining and I'm enjoying myself, so I produce this laughter and then that makes us more likely to repeat this type of interaction again in the future, just like if you gave your dog a treat for sitting when they sat. Um, so that's reward laughter. And that's probably what we all think of when we think of laughter. But it's actually not the most common um, type of laughter in everyday interaction. The most frequent observed type of laughter in conversations and social interactions um, is this much more subdued, what we might call conversational laughter that lacks that strong 
emotional intensity that you just heard in that last laugh clip. So I'm going to play one from my study where participants were interacting. And this time they were talking about video clips that made them feel kind of a sense of social connection and warmth. <laughs> so that laugh clip was extremely short. Um, you might not have even caught it if uh, a car horn honked in the background while you were listening to this. Um, but that's part of its acoustic feature. So while the reward laughter, the first one you heard, was long and intense and loud, it was kind of this broadcast. Um, this other type of laughter, this conversational laughter, is almost more of a punctuation mark. Um, it's subdued and small. It makes the person sound small. Um, and because of that, we think it's intended to send kind of non-threatening signals. It helps to release any tension in the social interaction, and it helps to kind of keep the conversation or the social interaction going smoothly. And so because we think it's serving these kind of social affiliative um, functions, we call it affiliation laughter. Um, and of course, I'll just to add a little caveat, we don't think of these as like discrete categories. We think of these as a uh, continua. So laughter could sound some like, like it falls somewhere in the middle between those first two clips. Um, okay. And then the final uh, context that we had our participants talk in was we had them watch video clips um, where people were acting like fools and the, we were encouraging the participants to laugh at the people in these video clips. Um, we all know what that means to laugh at someone rather than laughing with them. And we know that laughter plays an important role in teasing and, and being derisive. So I'll play for you a laugh clip that came from our participants who were watching video clips that made them feel der derision. <laughs> and so what we found with these laughs, when people were laughing in what we call a social dominance uh, situation where they are conveying their dominance and superior, superiority over another person, in this case, the person in a video clip who was, you know, falling on their face or whatever, um, we noticed several really interesting acoustic properties when we do the acoustic analysis. So while the affiliation laughter was small and quiet, this laughter was loud, as you heard, um, and it was also pretty abrasive to listen to. So it's noisier, um, kind of has more of a growl to it. Uh, it has a higher, what's known as a higher spectral center of gravity, which means it's, think about the difference between a trumpet versus a cello. A trumpet is kind of a little... Uh, no offense to the brass instruments, but it's a little bit more piercing and um, irritating to your ear. So that has a high spectral centroid, whereas a cello has a low spectral centroid. And it's like the soothing NPR voice. Um, so laughter in the when people are trying to convey dominance with their laughter, they make it sound more like a trumpet. So it's kind of this unpleasant thing to listen to, which makes sense because we think this type of laughter is serving to punish the target. So you want if you're trying to punish someone for, you know, a social transgression of some kind, you should make it unpleasant. It should be aversive, much like a shock would be or something. Okay. So it's just a really fascinating, um, you know, description of, of all these different possibilities, uh, you know, for, for laughter. Um, and you've, you've discovered that and a lot of other ideas, you know, through a very careful research, um, experimental studies and other types of, of research, uh, this is something I think our listeners would be interested in, you know, as well, um, Adrian. You know, can you give our listeners a sense of just how it is that that um, you know you and your colleagues actually study laughter, uh, you know, in the laboratory and in other places? You know, if there is such a thing as a typical study, you know, what does it entail? I mean, you, you talked about this a little bit already, but uh, I'm I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about just how this how this work um, happens. Um, you know, what are the logistics of doing uh, you know this kind of work? 
Yeah. So studying laughter in the lab is actually really easy, assuming you can buy like an okay microphone and soundproof your room a bit. Um, because people laugh constantly when they're together. And if you can bring, so if you can bring a couple people into the lab to participate in your study, you're going to get laughter, especially if you do some sort of icebreaker to get them acquainted with one another. And if you can bring friends together into the lab, you're going to get maybe too much laughter. You might have too much data and you won't know what to do with it. So it's really easy to get people to laugh. Um, and that's one of my favorite things about this is I don't have to go through elaborate steps to try to get them to feel in motion. People just laugh naturally. Um, but then the more interesting question is if you're trying to study different types of laughter and how laughter might sound um, differently across different social contexts or might serve different functions, depending on what the interaction looks like, um, then you have to set people up in different scenarios. So some people will go so far as to um, tickle, <laughs> tickle participants Gosh, during a okay. study, um, which I haven't been brave enough to do yet. Right. Uh, <laughs> I, I tend to just have people watch video clips together um, and like funny video clips and then talk about them and you get plenty of laughter there. Yeah. Um, people get pretty creative with this. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting to hear about uh, all those possibilities. I, well, so the last few minutes we have, I, I want to look ahead to the future. Um, in the long term future, I know this is a speculative question to ask, but I, do you think that has it been a matter of humans perhaps having found different functionality and, and possibilities for for laughter over time? And do you think that we will continue to get more nuanced and to you know to, to find new possibilities for expression with laughter? What's your sense of the I guess the future of laughter, if you will? I mean, is it is this going to continue to be a useful tool for humanity? What's your sense of that? Um, that's such an interesting question. I think that laughter will, all, will always be a really useful tool for humans. And I think it will always serve its kind of underlying fundamental function of conveying playfulness and a lack of seriousness and harmlessness. But beyond that, I think that the sky is the limit. Like I think, I think about, I'm not a humor researcher per se, but humor feels like one of the most rapidly evolving cultural trends. What is funny now will not be funny tomorrow by definition, right. because humor for something to be funny to us, it has to involve some sort of surprise. So we can't find the same thing funny over and over um, yeah. at infinitum. Um, so I think what makes us laugh will change and the context in which it's appropriate to laugh will change. But I don't think the underlying um, function, social function of laughter or its existence will ever go away. Yeah, well, it's an, an ongoing and enduring aspect of humanity, and perhaps even in an interesting twist, you know, it may find its way into artificial intelligence and all. Oh, who yeah. knows, right? It's just it's interesting to think about. Well, just the last minute or so that we've got, you know, if people want to get involved, they're really excited about this work, you know, now that you've talked about it, and they want to get involved. What do we need people to um, contribute in the future? What is you know, laughter research? What kind of skill sets, and um, you know, how can people prepare to perhaps you know make new breakthrough discoveries, you know, in the future in this arena? Um, I think the cool thing about laughter is there are so many different disciplines that could be involved. So like I mentioned earlier in the show, um, sociologists and biologists and anthropologists and philosophers and psychologists like myself all have something to contribute. Yeah. So if laughter is something that people are interested in. There's many paths to get there. Um, I think you mentioned technology and artificial intelligence. I think that um, there's a lot of work on affective computing, um, trying to detect people's emotions um, from their behavior. And 
that research is often a little theoretically barren. So they need more psychologists to come in and tell them, you know, laughter, for instance, laughter is not always a cue that someone's happy. So if you're trying to teach your machine learning algorithm to detect happiness based on laughter, you're not going to get very far. So Especially if they're being tickled in the lab and they don't particularly want that, right? So, yeah. I mean, a robot tickling me is my worst <laughs> right. um, So there's the affect computing part where you're trying to recognize, use, you know, automatically, maybe you want your phone to recognize when you're irritated with it or when you're enjoying what you're doing or whatever. But then there's also, we want emotionally um, fluent robots. And so we need robots that can use laughter at the right moments in an interaction and use the right tone of laughter so they don't come off as, you know, insane villains. <laughs> right. So I think there's a lot of really cool work to be done in robotics and machine learning and computer science. So if, I mean, I tell grad students who are even just trying to get into psychology that if you're still an or prospective grad students, I tell them, take some computer science courses, get a little bit of programming under your belt, because even us psychologists are now having to program as a part of our daily jobs. Yeah, that's really helpful advice. And so I, I, I really appreciate you coming on to the show and just shedding um, you know, a spotlight on on this vital part of um, of everyday life. So uh, we're just about out of time, um, you know, Adrian, but um, thank you so much uh, for being here today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Great. Okay. Well, we want to thank our listeners uh, for tuning in as well. Uh, it could be to our broadcast here on a weekly basis, or maybe you found us online somewhere uh, in a, a future download. No matter how you found us, we're always glad that you did. This is Brian Southwell. Stay curious out there. The Measure of Everyday Life is made possible by support from RTI International, an independent nonprofit institute dedicated to improving the human condition through research, development, and technical services. More information at rti.org.